0: Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary! Hey everyone, and welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary, your Bible podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. I'm Kevin Lester, and uh, let's uh, this is going to be great. Today is Luke 13, we'll dive into it soon. But you know what? First, let me just say, let's hang on to what we've got don't let go. We've got a lot, got a lot of love between us. So hang on, hang on, hang on to what we've got. <laughs> if you ever watched the video for that song, watch the bass player. He's hilarious. Anyway. Um, yeah, so, uh, we're going to jump into Luke 13 in just a moment, but real quick, I want to mention again that we do have a contest going. Um, we need rates and reviews. We really need them. Um, I'm getting more and more desperate. So I'm going to be pleading for them more and more earnestly. Um, Uh, I love doing this podcast and I want more people to hear it. And the only way we can get more people to hear are to get ratings and reviews up there on iTunes and on Facebook. So please, uh, do that. If you send me an email and just tell me, you don't even have to take a screenshot. I'm taking that part of it out. If you tell me that you put a rating or review up somewhere, um, just send me a message at lo-fi at kevinluster.net or find me on Facebook and shoot me a Facebook message directly. Send me your address and I'll mail you a really cool, I'll go ahead and tell you what the prize is. The prize are, I made custom uh, lo-fi lectionary pins. I also made one other custom pin that's just for you for winning a prize. So we have lo-fi lectionary pins just to, for, to, to have around in general. I'll send you one of those. But I also have a really goofy, silly uh, pin that I made just for people who leave a rating interview. So if you go do that, send me your address. If you've already done it, like in the past, maybe when we first started, you put up a rating review. send me your address so I can send you a pin. That would be awesome. I'd, I'd love to do that for you. Uh, just as a, as a way of saying thank you for supporting us and uh, helping my dream become possible. This, is, this really is, uh, you know, like a dream come true for me, doing the podcast. It's been a lot of fun, and I love... I love communicating and I love creating things and I love talking about the Bible. And so the podcast has been a way to merge like all of my loves and into one place and it's been really good for my heart and my soul just to do it, and I hope uh, that you're getting a lot out of it, too. I've gotten messages from some of you guys that you are getting a lot out of it as well. That's That's been great. Um, well, something else I'd love to do soon, um, a couple of people have sent in questions about some of the texts that we're digging into, especially as we're getting further into some more teaching parts of the Bible, where there's some kind of ethical, theological, kind of more heavy things going on. Um, people have had some questions, some really good insights and comments. I'd love to do like a QA and a response episode soon, so if you have some, please send them to me. um, And we'll do that soon. That would be awesome. I'd love it. Um, Maybe even um, what would be cool. I wonder if we could even hook up like a Skype thing so you could ask your question live or something like that. That'd be cool. Well, I'll I'll work on that. I'll work on that. You guys work on the ratings and reviews. All right. So here we go. Uh, Luke 13. uh, Let's go ahead and dive right on into it. Um, Luke, so far, so um the big kind of overview story is that uh Jesus kind of comes onto the scene and he 's he 's the Son of God, and Mary when he 's going to be born, sings a song about he 's going to he 's going bring the high, low and the low high, and he 's going to show the favor of God upon everyone and that 's really what the first kind of uh you know third of the book is about it 's you know act one of the book is Jesus just coming on the scene and just showing all of god 's Um, favor on everyone in a way that is very real and tangible and stuff like that. So he touches people and he heals them and he, and he hangs out with, with outcasts and sinners and suspicious people. And in that way, Luke is kind of presenting a view of the love and goodness. And I keep using the word favor because it's just such a good word for Luke, um, of God on everyone in a way that's include that's radically inclusive. So people who normally wouldn't be thought of as being people who deserve or earn or are currently carrying, you know, the favor of God upon them, you know, sick people, you know, crippled people, dead people, even, you know, um, people who are, are, are considered low class in their society, you know, women, um, foreigners, uh, tax collectors, people who are looked upon as sinners, prostitutes, things like that. Um, Jesus, whenever he shows up, he's like, oh, no, 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 God cares about you a lot and and let you come and hang out with me. I'll have dinner with you. And in fact, I'll defend you from people who are going to be your critics, things like that. And that's really what the first, you know, big third of the book is all about. It starts off with that very heavily, you know, you have, you have the contrast between Jesus and John the Baptist and John is kind of more fiery judgmental. And Jesus is kind of more like, no, I'm not here to be that kind of figure. I'm here to be just one who shows favor and goodness on everyone. And then that gets kind of nuanced over the next section of the book that we've, we've kind of found ourselves in the midst of right now. As Jesus starts and turns his head towards Jerusalem uh, to head there, he predicts his own death, and he says the conflict from here is going to rise. So act two of the story, you know, this is Daredevil finding out who the villain is, you know, and, and he needs to go and fight the hand, you know, so it's kind of getting more and more intense, you know. <laughs> um, and... Uh, um you know, he's still going around kind of showing favor and, you know, setting people free from evil and teaching an ethic of, you know, this generous love and, and, and love for enemies. But now it's being demonstrated in the midst of, you know, or maybe it's even kind of being tested in the midst of there's lots of people who are now going very much against Jesus, kind of standing in his way. And so he's been on this way to Jerusalem. So the tension is rising. Um, and in the context of that, Luke, as a writer, decides to put big blocks of teaching here. You know, the first kind of third of the book is more narrative, more action, stuff like that. And now it's still narrative, but within the midst of it, there's big blocks of Jesus' teaching. Now, if you compare that to the other Gospels, you'll see that this teaching is kind of more interspersed throughout the life and career of Jesus. But Luke kind of purposefully puts them on one big block to frame them in the midst of this context of the, the conflict that Jesus is having with these religious leaders, which is then going to set up the third act of the story where, you know, we have, you know, the death-resurrection kind of part of the Jesus story. And that all makes sense, Luke thinks, when you understand the, the just the rising heated tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. So... Um, you know, Jesus in the last part just predicted, you know, this is not going to be a happy disagreement. I mean, this is going to be a disagreement between me and them. It's going to be like a family being divided, like people who love and care for each other are going to disagree on this so sharply that it's going to cause trouble. And that kind of even maybe sets up the way that Jesus looks at the leaders and the enemies and the people that are standing up against him. He's like, oh, it's, it's like family, It's like our household is being split. And there's even a kind of intimacy and love, even in the midst of that imagery. So um, as we jump into Luke, um, Luke uh, 13, you're going to see two parties. It's kind of a story of two different parties, and you're going to see what happens when these two parties happen. So let's go right into it. At the time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed in the Tower of Siloam when it fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for the fruit on it and found none. So he said to his gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well, and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so... (coughs) First little passage, um, you know, the, these people, you know, hey, Jesus, have you heard the news? Um, there were some uh, people, there were some Galileans, so some people from, from your area, from your hometown, um, uh, from your home state, kind of. Uh, and they were killed and Pilate mingled their blood with their sacrifices, which is a way of... Uh, causing sacrilege in their religious worship. So the Romans, again, not very nice. They kind of let um, Israel keep its own religion, but they often kind of messed with it. Or um, when they wanted to kind of show their power, would would... Uh, would like defile it in different ways so um you know you have the the hanukkah story where the rulers there um you know sacrifice unclean animals in the temple to kind of you know cause sacrilege in it to to make everybody upset but to kind of show their power throw their weight around a little bit and so um hey you know um you know there's these people who um who you know were killed and then ew their human blood uh was mingled with their sacrifices gross um you know and jesus uses uh, the theological think of do you think you know rhetorical question um he has this one little theological moment this lesson hidden within the context of the greater argument um you know do you think that these people you know suffered so badly and or had their their sacrifices defiled um because they were worse sinners than others no you know, or the people who, uh, you know, a tower fell on them, you know, like a natural disaster fell on them. Do you think that they were worse than other people? Do you think that God caused that to happen because they were bad people? No. Um, and, and there, that's just a little theological nugget that shows kind of how Jesus thinks of, of God, what God's work is in the world and what God's business, is. you know, he's asking, you know, do you think God orchestrates disasters so that only bad people get hurt? Like as a, as a form of punishment, you know, and even our political rivals, do you think our enemies, you know, when, when they strike and they kill or hurt people or defile their sacrifices, stuff like that, do you think that God makes sure that it only happens to bad people? No, you know, again, remember in the story of Luke, like Jesus's view of God is one where he says God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Like God loves everybody. He's not in the business of going around and making sure that good people never get hurt. And that bad people always get the judgment upon them, and so if something bad happens to someone, then you 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 need to know that it's a form of judgment. Like that's not how Jesus thinks it works, which is just really interesting. We're, we can we can unpack that. Um, later, but we've kind of been unpacking that a lot over the, the Luke altogether. And then, um, so, so he uses that opportunity to, to give another message about repentance. Remember, repentance is a big key theme throughout the whole book of Luke. Um, and he tells this little parable about the fig tree. So the fig tree for three years grows no fruit on it. Now in Jewish custom, when you plant a tree in a garden, if it grows fruit, you're not supposed to eat it. Like it's in the law. Don't eat the fruit on it for the first three years. Let the tree grow. Let it grow strong. Let it take good roots. Don't eat the fruit on the tree for three years. Um, So the man has been coming out every year and waiting to eat the fruit on this tree. It's one year, two years, three years. And he comes and it's the third year. And he's like, "Uh, you know, like, uh, it's supposed to be growing fruit. You know, next year is the fruit eating year. But you know what? I don't want to waste my time. It's not, it's never grown fruit go ahead and chop it down gardener and the gardener is pleads the case of the tree you know let it alone for one more year please just a little bit more time i'm going to dig around it i'm going to put fertilizer all around it and if, and we'll see if, if we can get it to 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 bear some fruit um you know and so it's like the tree you know you know we're we're waiting to see if the tree is going to be a good tree or a bad tree and uh <clears throat> From Jesus' point of view, in the context of lots of these teachings about judgment, Jesus is always loving his enemies and trying to win them over with arguments and stuff like that. And it's like he's calling them towards good and real repentance to change their ways. It's like he wants them to finally grow fruit, to be a healthy tree, to be the religious leaders that Israel needs them to be. Um and i love how jesus turns an argument around like where people first are like oh these people who did something bad maybe and these disasters happened upon them do you think that they were worse people than others you know, and it's talking about it's a conversation about what whether other people are sinners or bad or not. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You need to repent. Like it's like don't think about other people again. Jesus is really big on that. Like like don't judge others. Don't you know? Like, think for yourself. What are you going to do right now? Are, don't ask the question, "Who is my neighbor?" Ask, "Are you being a neighbor?" You know, um, Jesus always flips it around to make people kind of analyze and judge and think for themselves which is kind of interesting. So, um, so at the very end, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish, like, just like they did. You know, um, Jesus wants people to focus on themselves. It's really, really interesting. And there's still time in the parable. There's perpetually still time. There's, there's one more year is the situation that everyone finds themselves in. So please repent and show fruit. Let's go ahead and continue on the story, see what happens. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just there he appeared, just just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, woman, you are set free from your ailment. And when he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. So real quick, let's just set the story, because this is one of my favorite little Jesus stories. So, you know, Jesus is there, he's teaching in the synagogue, and just then there appeared a woman who was crippled. Um, It's kind of interesting, she's not part of the synagogue crowd. Like, she's not there for the teaching. Like, she's a woman and she's crippled, she's kind of on the fringe. And she just then there appears. So you can kind of imagine like, like Jesus talking to a crowd and they're all kind of watching and listening very intently, like focusing on him. And Jesus looks over the crowd and sees, oh my gosh, just then passing by, he eyes this, this woman who's, be- who's visibly bent over, you know, and she's been like that for 18 years. And she catches Jesus's eye And he stops what he's doing and he calls her over. Like he makes her the center of attention. And then he says, woman, you are set free from your ailment. And then he lays hands on her. So again, Jesus has healed before just with words, but this is one of those special moments where he deliberately puts his hands on her body. And immediately she stands up straight and begins praising God. Really, really, really interesting. Let's continue on. But the leader of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had cured on the sabbath kept saying to the crowd there are 6 days on which work ought to be done come on those days and be cured but not on the sabbath day so he keeps saying this over and over and over again it's 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 an idea of repetition like he keeps like he makes an announcement and makes sure everyone hears it and that it's very clear look there's 6 days you can come to be healed don't come on the sabbath day to be healed And it doesn't appear that this woman came for that purpose. It looks like she was kind of just walking by. But anyway, um, let's see what Jesus does. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And when he said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And he said, and again he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took. And mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. So we have a break in the teaching block um, for a little narrative story, this little healing story. Um, and uh a couple of interesting things about it. Um I think that if you if you've been paying attention to the themes of the story, that this story is inserted here by Luke intentionally, because of it kind of illustrates a lot of the of the themes and the points that Jesus is making um so far. As one little story, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a. Jesus tells parables, like he tells stories to kind of illustrate his points. And this story is like a living parable to explain and make clear for us what's been going on in the story so far. So, um, let let me tell you my version of it. So, this woman who's been bent for eighteen years, she she's maybe been under suspicion. Like it says that that they think that this she's been bent for eighteen years because of a, a spirit that has been with her. Now, in their medical language, um, if you um, if you, someone had a spinal injury like this, if it was ever cured, if they were ever straightened, the, the, the term for it was loosed. And that's the same term loosed that they would use for when someone was set free from a spirit. So there's kind of some weird crossover between medical science on one side and the spiritual side of it on the other side being kind of at play in the story, but she's been bound, they say for 18 years by a spirit. And so therefore, if, if it's the community's understanding that this person has been bound by a spirit for 18 years, that doesn't set her in a good place in the context of the community, um, you know, but Jesus calls her over, brings her close like lays his hands on her. So there's lots of there's some intimacy there. There's some uh some again a theme of Jesus being unafraid of people who are suspi- who are otherwise always under suspicion. You know, he's unconcerned with the social convention of his time here is a woman who is possibly, you know, being infected by by an evil spirit they believe and he just lays his hands right on her. You know. Um, and earlier in in a, in a different story, Jesus healed on a synagogue in the context of it and people got upset by it. But we said that Jesus doesn't touch the person. He just uses his words. And we said that that might be Jesus kind of using a loophole. It's like, Oh, as long as I don't touch him and take action, that makes it very clear that I'm quote unquote, not working on the Sabbath. But Jesus here is like, let me put my hand, like uh, hands on this woman. Like it's very clearly a physical work in that sense. Now, you know, depending on where people like Laid. like this would have been something debated as to whether or not this actually counted as work but uh but still jesus is 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 unconcerned about it his concern is for showing mercy and favor to this woman and then let's look at the people's responses so the woman immediately like straightens up and it says that she praises God immediately and the leader of the synagogue who's supposed to be the one most easily able to identify the work and goodness of God is quote unquote indignant because of. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Like, he can't praise the good thing that just happened because he's so upset over the potential breaking of the law. And he's so concerned about the law that he turns it. In, he tries to turn the party into a lecture. There are six days and work to work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured. Like, come and get good from God on those days. This is the day that we're supposed to focus on giving our goodness to God, not receiving goodness from God, in a sense. Um, and so he he doesn't praise, he doesn't join in on the song that this that this lady's so happy. And so Jesus kind of responds with, like, Are you kidding me? You know what I mean? Like, like, this lady's been bound for 18 years by an evil spirit. And if and if, yeah, if it's an evil spirit, then that means that God must have been involved in healing her. So this is clearly a work of goodness of God. And you're upset about it, you're pissed off. Like How awful. Like he says, like, like he says, you know, you hypocrites. Again, remember, hypocrite is a word for, you know, you performers. Like, you're just, it's all just an act because you'll go home and you'll work on the Sabbath. You'll do bigger acts of work. But because I did one here that was clearly a work of God, that was clearly a good thing, you're, you're all like, like whiny about it. You're upset. Like, you're so close and you're so far off. Like, you will literally treat this woman worse than you'll treat a donkey or an ox. You hypocrite. And then at the end, there's this little, you know, there's this this little sentence at the end when it's, and he said all this, his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. So he silences the leaders, and they're kind of silent. And if 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 you try and imagine the scene in your head, you have to see them kind of standing apart, And then it says the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. So you kind of see Jesus standing up and defending this woman and kind of shutting up all the, you know, the, the leaders, like all of his opponents. And then everyone from the crowd being like, oh, you know, and they turn and they have a party. They're all rejoicing at all the wonderful things. And Jesus is kind of on their side and he's rejoicing with them. So There's a whole crowd and this woman and Jesus and they're all just they just throw a little mini party. You know, like at the scene in the synagogue, because they're all so happy about something good that God just did. And you have these leaders who can't join the party because they're so upset. Like, they can't be excited about the good thing that God just did because of their concern for the law or their, you know, like suspicion of this person or, you know, or because, you know, the person who received favor wasn't one of them, one of the elite class, it was someone else, whatever the reason is, they can't join the party. And so that's kind of like a good, like a word picture. It's a, it's a good living parable. There's a party where God's favor is being shown to people, but not everybody goes in and joins it. Like and it's not because Jesus is keeping them out of it. Like he kind of is is there and and they can join the party too if they want to, but they choose not to. But Jesus is with the partiers. Um and then Jesus kind of follows it with these two little sayings about the kingdom of God to kind of bring the point home. He compares the kingdom of God to two things. One is like little tiny teeny tiny mustard seed. Mustard seeds were real small. And it's like, oh, it's like someone plants it, but it starts out real small and then it gets real big. Like the kingdom of God, it it often happens in these small little acts of just, you know, one person being healed, one person being set free, one week where God's favor is shown, but it's going to grow and it's going to grow and it's going to grow and you can't stop it. Like once it's planted, it's just going to go and it's going to grow and be so big. It's going to be like a place where other birds and creatures can find homes within it. It's a good thing. It's a hospitable thing. And then he follows that with the one <clears throat> about the the yeast where he compares God. He says, you know, God is like a woman, like a housekeeper, like a, a baker in their home who just takes yeast and mixes it. And with the flour and then all of its leaven, like it has all the yeast in it, it, it can't be stopped. Like when that bed breaks, bread bakes, you, you're going to know that it's there and it's going to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And it, they, they keep mixing it and mixing it and mixing it until all of the flour has leavening. Like, it, it it's far-reaching is the idea. Like, like, and the proper response won't be to fight it, but to celebrate it. You can't restrict and control God's goodness and favor. Even the Sabbath law itself, that should be a good thing from God, can't control just the mercy that God wants to show. And so don't fight it, you guys. Just let it be. Celebrate it. In fact, maybe you should join in on the leavening. Um, and so, yeah, it's just kind of two little interesting visions of the kingdom of God. And let's just go ahead and take note again that in the book of Luke, Luke is perfectly fine with comparing God to a woman, um, because Luke has kind of an agenda of, of, of setting women as equals in the story. And so Jesus compares God to a womanly figure, which is really interesting. One of my favorite little, little Jesus moments in the book of Luke. Let's continue on in the story. So Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? And he said to them, strive to enter the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. When once the owner of the house has gotten up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then in reply, he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves are thrown out. Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. So we have a little little narrative phrase. You know, Jesus is is, is you know going through town to town from one another, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So again, whenever Jerusalem is talked about, that's a key point um, of just noting that the tension is going to be rising again. Um, and it reminds us that Jesus is kind of on a mission. He's kind of on a purposeful um, you know track path. You know, as a uh, through Act Two of the story. And, um, he's on his way there and, uh, he's, he's, he, he kind of intentionally doesn't get there yet. He takes kind of a long route we see, um, at least in the book of Luke. Um, and on his way, he's teaching and he gets a question, you know, are only a few people going to make it, you know, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus doesn't answer this question directly, at least not right away. Again, he refocuses it to a better question. You know, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? So someone's asking him about all the other people. Like are only a few of us or of these people of the whole crowd going to make it? And Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow door. I tell you, you know what I mean? So again, he says, you know, think about yourself, think about your own actions, think about your own path. That's just a typical Jesus tack. And, um. Then he tells a, a parable, you know. Um, he says, you know, it's it's going to be kind of hard. It's going to be difficult to make it, you know. Um, and and it's going to be like this. Um, he tells a parable of a second party, and the owner of this house is throwing a big party, right? And ever lots of people are going to come, and some people are going to get in, and some people like eventually at a certain point, the 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 owner of the house might might shut the gate. And if you're still outside, you're gonna you're gonna knock on the door. Excuse me. You know, and the outside, the people on the outside, you know, call out and they're like, "Hey, we're we're supposed to be inside with you. You know, we've eaten with you before. Like we've had intimacy with you before. We think we're one of your friends. Like remember, eating together showed that you socially identified and shared your life with someone. And they 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 say say specifically, we ate and drink with you, and you taught in our streets. Like we know you. We've heard your 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 teaching, and we've eaten with you before." We, we thought that we are one of your people, you know? And so there's this danger Jesus is teaching from assuming that you are identified with you know, the master of the house, because you, you, you might not be, you can't assume that you're on the inside, you know, and the master of the house, you know, responds, you know, I I don't know who you are. In fact, like, I'm, you're not one of my close people. I have no idea who you are. Go away from me, all you evildoers. Um, You know, the go away from me, all you evildoers part is actually a quote from a Psalm. It's from, it's from Psalm six. It's, it's earlier in the old Testament. There's a collection of, of songs um, called the book of Psalms. And in one of them, there's one called Psalm 6. And it's a story where someone is being persecuted. Like they have all these enemies that are surrounding them for doing something good. And they, they, their, their prayer in the Psalm is a prayer to God saying, you know, um, God, come and tell these people to go away from me, all these evildoers. And Jesus here quotes it as being from them. So in fact, you know, it's not that the master of the house is saying like, ah, some of you guys just kind of didn't make it and you, you didn't really do the right things or whatever. He's like, no, actually, you guys have been my enemies all along. And you didn't realize, maybe you didn't realize it, but you've been working against me. Um, You know, you think you know me, but you've been working against me the whole time. So again, it kind of taps into this theme um, from the last couple chapters, you know, where Jesus says, you know, there's a thing called, there's a thing that's like blasphemy against the spirit of God, where you're calling what's good evil, and you actually have been working against it. And what you thought was good was wrong. And what you thought was evil was, was good. And that's not by accident, because the, the, the more you know, and the more that God has been close to you, like the, the more you're, you're, Jesus thinks you're, you're like held accountable to that. Um, and you should have known, but you've actually been working against me the whole time. And so he says, you know, it's like, you're going to be sad when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are like the three central figures of the Israelite, you know, nation from the Old Testament, you know, that started their lineage um, and you're going to, you know, so again, he's speaking in a, in a very Jewish context. So it's like, you're going to be seeing your forefathers in there, but it's turned out all along that you weren't really one of those people, that you're not really part of the the line of people of God's people. Um, and so you need to be careful about that. But then he follows it up with people from the North, the South, the East, and the West are going to come and they're going to come in and eat. So they, these people you didn't think all along are going to come from all these other countries, you know, from outside of Israel, from all over the world, and are going to get into this, to this party are actually going to be very closely identified with, with, you know, the master of the house. They're going to be people that he knows, even though they came from far away, he's going to know their names and they're going to be invited in to join the party and to eat and drink and be with them. So it's Jesus in this parable is painting the picture of like a new exodus you know, like the Israelite people in the in the Old Testament went on an exodus from a foreign land to the promised land to start this new country, this new nation that was going to be dedicated to God. And Jesus here is using the language of people are going to be traveling and moving and journeying from all over the world to eat in the kingdom of God. Like people are going to be coming, making exoduses from all over the world and and they are actually going to come and be God's people as well. So everyone's invited. It's this radically inclusive Picture, but if you've been an evil doer all along, then you might not have a place there. It's kind of interesting. Um, and Jesus here, even in speaking this message, is trying to win them over. He's trying to make them wake up and realize their mistake. Like, like, don't worry about the crowds as to whether or not how many people are going to worry about yourself. You know. Um, and this is hard work that Jesus is again and again and again, chapter after chapter in the section of Luke, trying to show people where their mistakes are. And trying to help people wake up and kind of get on the right side of it before you know it's too late before it's 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 decided that the tree is not growing fruit, um, you know. But it's hard to tell someone who thinks that they are in that they are actually out, isn't it? Um, and Jesus is really. Butting heads with this again and again and again. So hence there's this emphasis in Jesus' teaching on repentance. You know, remember the earlier chapters that everyone on the ground does well. Everyone who comes to Jesus is like, oh my gosh, like I don't deserve this. I've been made huge I've made huge mistakes, but you've been so good and so merciful, you know, like either depart from me because I don't deserve to be around you, or please, please, please help me. And Jesus has this idea that he can work with people who realize their mistakes, even if they make huge mistakes. But these people can be the elites, they can be the most talented, the most knowledgeable, the most, you know, worthy, they can come from the right lines and lineages, but if they're unrepentant, there's just nothing he can really do with them, and therefore they might not join the party. And it's their choice, you know, again and again and again as to whether or not they go in. It's kind of, kind of interesting. Um... And so Jesus answers, you know, this, and the, so then at the very end, Jesus kind of does answer the question indirectly. You know, the original question, are only a few people going to get to get in? And Jesus does answer that question, but his real answer is, oh, people are going to come from all over the world and they're going to get in. So if you've ever answered this this question yourself, um, I mean, this is this could be a great kitchen conversation, you know, are only a few people going to get into heaven? Jesus seems to think that there's going to be more people inside the party than outside in the end, you know, because people are going to come from all over, you know, but there's some people who have made themselves evildoers. There's some people who have persecuted goodness. There's some people who have worked on the side of, of evil that maybe aren't going to to, to, to get in and whether that's, because God decides to kind of shut the door on them or whether that's because, um, you know, in the earlier story, they just kind of decide that they don't want to celebrate the goodness of God. It's kind of unclear because these two stories kind of stand in tension with each other a little bit. But it does sound like if you're going to ask Jesus the question, are only a few people going to get in? Jesus in his word picture does mention that, you know, it's going to be hard to get in, but it seems like, you know, he says many people, you know, from all over. Are going to come and they're all going to get in, and he's like, "But you might be one of the the kind of few people on the outside who thought that you were going to get in all along, and 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 that's not going to be your place." It's 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 really interesting. <clears throat> Let's continue on in the story. At the very same hour, Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, "Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you." And he said to them. This is one of my favorite Jesus moments, so I'll get ready for this. He said to them, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So real quick to note, Jesus and Luke, here in the story, there is some good Pharisees. It's one little sentence at that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. There are some Pharisees out there who who identify the goodness of Jesus and want him to be safe And they hear about this secret plan that maybe even, you know, maybe even Herod is trying to to work together with the Pharisees with them. Remember, the Pharisees are kind of the, there's more Pharisees outside of Jerusalem than inside. They're kind of the pastors from the the outskirts, you know, and the religious leaders outside of the main kind of central um, place, you know, they're outside of the temple structure and stuff like that. And so is Herod. He kind of more governs outside of Jerusalem, from what I understand, than kind of inside because Pilate kind of controls from inside. Um, and so he kind of is, is more in charge of the outlying territories. And so maybe Herod is trying to, to get in league with them to kind of plot and catch and kill Jesus. Um, you know, earlier we heard from Herod that Herod was curious about Jesus and really wanted to hear about him because he found him, you know, he was kind of curious about him. That curiosity has turned to murderous intent. And some of these Pharisees come to Jesus and they're like, oh no, you need to get away from here. Even in the midst of Jesus laying clear criticisms against the religious leaders, some of them are responding and come to him and say, get away from here. We want to keep you safe because Herod is trying to kill you. And it's a good reminder to us as the readers that even when um, in these ancient books, it says something like, and the Pharisees or the leaders or the teachers of the law came and were plotting against Jesus, we can't overgeneralize because those are just titles for a wide group of people and some of them are trying to help. And that's really interesting. So Herod is trying to kill Jesus and Jesus stands up against Herod. Like Herod is, um, is, you know, the, a, a political leader. Again, he's, he's, he's like one of these elites whose, whose job is supposed to be caring for and taking care of these people. And remember, this is the time when most people lived in really horrible abject poverty and Herod is supposed to be caring for them and and he doesn't like he kind of lives off of you know off of their wages and stuff like that and he builds large palaces and stuff like that he's his his position is more for himself than for them and so Jesus responds go and tell that fox for me and you know um you know, whether it's, uh, you know, because of the, of the Jimi Hendrix song or whether it's just because of, you know, folklore or foxes are kind of glorified and being foxy is kind of a good thing. Or I love fantastic. Mr. Fox it's one of my favorite books and movie. Um, that the, in their context, it is not a compliment. I mean, a fox is, is, from the dog line. So it's an unclean animal in the first place. Um, and foxes are kind of spoken of and used as a symbol of someone who is worthless, slanderous, or treacherous is the three phrases I, that came up in my research. So Jesus is like, tell that treacherous, worthless, slanderous fox for me. Like, Jesus doesn't even want to go and see this guy. Jesus doesn't want to respond directly. He's like, look, if you have a communication with Herod and you hear from him again, you, here's here's what you can tell him when I think of him. <laughs> uh, I I like this Jesus who stands up to, to bad, bad, you know, to villains, <laughs> you know. Go and tell that fox for me. At least that's because I don't think he's telling it to me. So maybe that's the only reason I like it at this point. But, um, you know, tell him, you know um, that here's what's going to happen. Like he can't catch me. He can't get me. I know my path. I'm going to be doing this work today and tomorrow and he can't stop me. And on the third day, then when I'm done, I'll be ready. You know, I'm, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And until I get to Jerusalem, he can't, I know that he, this guy, he can do nothing against me. He can't lay a hand on me <laughs> like that's kind of interesting, um, you know, and he again plots out what's what he thinks is going to happen to him. He He's predicting, you know, today, tomorrow, the next day, I'm going to be on my way. I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm not going to be thwarted by this guy or rumors about him wanting to get me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and that's where it's all going to come down you know, because, and again, he he lays out that, Jerus, you know, in Jerusalem, that's 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 the royal city and the temple. It is the center of religious and political discourse. So it is the place, it should be the center of their religious piety. And so when Jesus talks about Jerusalem as being a bad place, as the only place where, where good things go to die, like this would be shocking. And yet there is a history of that as well, because it is the center of their culture, both religiously and politically. In the Old Testament, like a lot of good people met their end there, when bad people were in control of things and Jesus is kind of saying like, yeah, it's it's supposed to be good, but it's going to get real bad and they're going to be the ones. That's the only place where it's going to get real, real bad, where they can actually catch me. Um, and uh, so there's there's kind of an irony there um, that's felt, you know, if you were in his audience, you would kind of sense some tension there that it's supposed to be the best place. But Jesus is like, oh, no, this is actually kind of the worst place Um, because prophets in the ancient traditions would go to Jerusalem to warn the king, to warn the priest, to to cause a religious reform to happen. But if the power structure didn't want that, a lot of prophets met really bad ends, you know, in Jerusalem. Um, And so Jesus is like, yeah, if there's one place I'm going to be martyred for a good cause, it's going to be Jerusalem. You know, because they have a long history of killing God's good messengers and God's good reformers. Um, and yet, what does Jesus want to do when he's like, oh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and it's going to get real bad. Everyone's going to turn against me and I'm going to be, you know, martyred and, and killed. And what does he want to do even in, in what seems like full knowledge of how bad it's going to get for him there? He wants to gather them together like a hen gathering Together, her brood under her wings, but he's sad because they are not willing. Um, Again, here in this one chapter, we get a second use of female language for God. And again, this is a key theme for Luke. Luke doesn't care. Luke wants to raise up the position of woman in the Jesus story, and Jesus seems to do that too. and uh, he wants to gather them together. Now let's talk about hens. Okay, so bird imagery in the Old Testament. This is going to be real fun. This is where I get real nerdy and historical. So bird imagery all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's lots of images for God, where God wants to gather people under his wings. And whenever it uses that, it's usually within a psalm or even in some narrative passages where someone uses this poetic phrase of God will gather you under your wings. Like if they say, like, here's this law and this law and this law, and if you follow them, God will gather you together under his wings it's a it's a poetic phrase of intimacy and protection and so when people talked about gentiles being converted like other people joining the nation of israel and stuff like that joining their religious order and becoming one of god's people they would actually use that phrase of, of like god is like gathering you under his wings like so when you convert and become one of us god is gathering you under his wings and so jesus says oh jerusalem i want to gather you under my wings Like they, Jesus wants to convert them. Like he wants to bring them together. He wants to love them and protect them and have them be his. um, But you weren't willing. So it's like, it's like, it is kind of a conversion metaphor. Like he, he wants them to be willing to be gathered together and be one of his brood that he can protect them like a mother hen. And Jesus is here again. Let's take note that Jesus is speaking of himself in godly language. Um, so, you know, it was God who gathered people together under their wings. And here Jesus is like, I want to gather you together under my wings. But Jesus makes a big, big change in the way that this language of birds is used in their literature and the way that he's using it right now. Because in the previous stories, in what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, the popular image of a bird is in a hen. It's an, it's like an eagle, you know, because eagles were were fearsome birds of prey that were symbols of power and might. They were symbols of strength and protection. And so if if God was gonna gather you together under his strong eagle wings, you know, to protect you and bring you and make you his, he was like an eagle. And so eagles were used as symbols of God's like conquest and military strength. You know, he 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 offers protection by being a bird of prey. But Jesus here doesn't speak of himself as an eagle, he's he's a hen. And that seems to be a very deliberate choice because he still uses the same imagery of gathering together under wings, but he changes it from an eagle to a hen. Jesus is here once again telling his people, I'm not coming to be a military leader. I'm not a bird of prey. I'm not out to strike and use my strength that way. I'm coming like a gentle mother hen. It's a movement that Jesus is making, a theological movement in what he's going to do as the Messiah, as the reformer, as the savior, as the leader, as the king, as the anointed one, to move from one who is out to cause destruction and flex his muscles in that way to one who shows his strength by love and favor. Isn't that an interesting change? And here's one more thing that makes it even better. He says, go and tell that fox for me. I'm going to do my work and you can't stop me. And I'm going to want to go and I'm going to try and gather you all together like a hen gathers her brood. Foxes prey on hens. Jesus deliberately chooses two animal words in this one little teaching and Luke writes it down this way to contrast each other, where Jesus is presenting himself as loving and giving, and because of that, extremely vulnerable to the fox. And yet Jesus has this idea that that's the better way, that love is better than destruction. It's better to be a hen than to be a fox, because foxes are treacherous and hens are loving. And Jesus is here telling us, and telling his audience, rather, that he'd rather spend and lose his life winning his enemies over and trying to gather them together than over winning and doing conquest over them. Isn't that interesting? And then he finishes off by saying, blessed is the one who comes. Y- you know, he says, like, you're all going to be inviting me in with this phrase. And that's, that is royal, you know, language. That's, that's the way you would welcome a Messiah. You know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, that's the way you'd welcome a Messiah or at least, you know, a prophet or someone coming who is going to come and do something big. But Jesus says, that's the way you're going to welcome me, but I'm not going to be the military emperor. I'm not going to be the eagle. And I'm certainly not going to be the fox. I'm going to be the hen, the housewife, the farmer who gathers you together so please come and be willing and repent so you can experience my favor and you can join in on the party such a great story here we go um that's the end of our of our scripture for the day let's go ahead and dig into our lo-fi questions so question number one what is God like in Luke 13 um, number one starting off from the very beginning God in this little theological point that God makes um, uh, or that Jesus makes um, and Luke records um, Luke has Jesus saying these words of, you, you know, do you think that you know that because these people's blood was mixed with their sacrifices, or that this tower fell on other people, that God is in the business of causing disasters to fallen people? No, I tell you, twice Jesus says that no, no, um, you know. And there's a theological point in this idea that if Luke 13 is telling us anything that's true about God, um, God as a character in the Book of Luke is not in the business of causing disasters to fall on people. Um, and that's really interesting. Um, you know, um, in fact, Jesus contrasts that with God is in the business of giving people more chances, you know, the fig tree, uh, imagery that he has and stuff like that. God is in the business of, of mixing the yeast, you know, into the bread. So it spreads all over. God is in the midst of planting trees where even birds can come and live, you know, um, he's not in the business of, of the destruction. And so, um, very interesting for us to know, especially in a culture that seems so willing to uh, to talk about how God caused bad things to happen to people for specific reasons. Luke here is saying, actually God God doesn't like to do that at all. He's a, he doesn't even do it. <laughs> you know um, you know, so that's point number one. Um, point number two, uh, what is God like? You know, Jesus with the bent woman, God is compassionate towards those who are hurting. Especially those who have been hurting for a long time and are on the outside of the system that's supposed to be designed to help them, but may or maybe around the outskirts. Like this woman just walks by around the fringe of the crowd and Jesus brings her center and lays his hands on her and then fights against the religious the use of the religious law that would otherwise prevent these people from experiencing God's goodness. God values people over the religious system that's supposed to focus on him. Like, like you have to imagine, like, in the in context of an ancient world, the worship was supposed to show how we thought God was more important than anything else. And Jesus flips it around to say, no, people are actually more important than us getting together and talking about and showing how God, how important God is. Does that make sense? Like, he values goodness and compassion and wholeness of these people over his own worship. And that might seem kind of like a no-brainer to a lot of people in the way that we think of God now, but back then that that might have been a bigger deal. And I, I would venture to say that it should be a bigger deal to us now today. Like it's God saying, no, it's not about me. It's actually about you. This is all supposed to be for you, which is really interesting. Um, and the better celebration isn't the worship that we should keep and the law keeping that you can keep over the Sabbath, but the better celebration is the rejoicing we find over God showing mercy to someone you know, there was supposed to be one party in a sense, you know, the party of keeping um, God's laws and we could celebrate that. But no, instead, Jesus like, we should celebrate that people are being set free and that people are having mercy shown on them and people are being taken care of. And that's the better party. Interesting. Um, What is God like? God works with the small, works small and steady with the kingdom of God. So, you know, Jesus presents those two metaphors, you know, the small mustard seed, the woman baking with yeast, a small thing, and it works to incorporate it until it's all yeasty. Like it would be nice if, if maybe God could work by coming and like, you know, doing big, big things to make it obvious to everybody. But Jesus seems to present this idea of God in Luke, where God can work small and steady over a longer period of time to, to make things happen as they should be, to bring about this kingdom of God. Um, and number four, um, with the hen bird imagery, um, this idea of God as being not a military conqueror, but a loving, caring, protective mother who is working to gather all the people together, even the errant children, even the enemies, um, and even in the midst of those judgment. We do get some parables and some teaching about judgment, but you have the moment of Jesus here offering these parables. To try and win people over. Like the parable isn't there to be like, oh, yep, so some people are going to be bad and God is just fine with that. It's not that God is fine with some people being outside the gates. God is actively trying to win these people over for them now. He's fighting for the hearts and minds and souls and bodies of the people who would make himself these enemies. That's what God is like. Really interesting. Number two, what are people like? Um, so we get this woman in the crowd versus the religious leaders. Some people will get together and will celebrate and be happy when good things happen. And some people don't get together and celebrate when good things happen. And that's just in the book of Luke, what some people are like and what some other people are like. Isn't that interesting? And it happens to be that the people who don't celebrate and aren't happy about the good things happening happen to be the religious leaders who are supposed to be the closest to God. Chew you on that one, you know. That's just what some people are like. The outcasts and the people on the ground are always ready to celebrate how good God is and the other people aren't. Um, What else are people like in, in this story in Luke 13? There's some good Pharisees. So some people who are religious and are the leaders and are the elites and are the people at the top of the social food chain, you know what I mean, are good and do hear the message and do want to help Jesus and be part of what he's doing, at least enough to help protect him and help him not get killed. People can change their minds in Luke. People can repent and do the right thing. People can overcome their social identity enough to quit and to, to betray their group and do the right thing. And that's why Jesus maybe feels so empowered to kind of try and work so hard to win these people over. Like he holds out hope for them because there's this idea in the book of Luke that people actually can change and repent and do the right thing. Like that's something about people that this story teaches. People can change. Um, and three, Um, what are people like? Well, in the example of Herod, at least we can see that people again can be corrupted by power. Like, um, you know, Herod is committing, you know, possibly you could say like the blasphemy against the spirit. He's out to kill Jesus because that he's chosen or made the choice or believes that Jesus is doing the wrong thing, that Jesus is actually, he's made Jesus to be an evil in the world to protect whatever good that Herod wants. Um, and that's very dangerous. Like Luke is, is is again teaching us this idea that what are people like? Well, some people can be corrupted by power. Like Luke teaches this lesson again and again and again that people are human. People are crazy susceptible to being corrupted by power and wealth because of what they'll do to protect it or keep it or to stop people who might be taking some of it from them. And we get the kind of the. The vivid example of Herod in this story. Um, so why why this story? Why this collection of stories in Luke thirteen? Um, why would why would people why would these stories be written and told to each other for a while? Why would Luke hear them and decide amongst all the stories he could keep? Why would he write them down and in what we call Luke thirteen? Why would people keep the book of Luke around for years and teach it to each other and tell these stories and, and then eventually make podcasts over these stories? Um, what do we think it taught people at the time and what do we think it could maybe teach people now? Like, um, one, remember if a lot of people's audience in the, in the book of Luke had just experienced like, or heard about these apocalyptic events of Jerusalem and Israel being overtaken by Rome and burned to the ground. And a lot of these people, if they identify with the religious community that's coming in, um, around this Jesus movement might know and be connected to people there and so they might be wondering, well, why did God let that happen? Were, were those people in Jerusalem bad people? Did they make bigger mistakes than us? And so is God judging them? You know, especially people on the other side of the Jesus movement, they have to wonder, well, if Jerusalem is the center of the religious and political social order that, that maybe put Jesus to death, like that stood up as Jesus's enemies, is God judging them through this apocalyptic event? And at least if they, if they hold on to these stories in Luke 13, where Jesus is like, do you think that they did something so bad that that's why God punished them? No. Then their answer that they would be challenged to consider would be to say, no, these people aren't worse than us. In fact, we should focus on our own repentance and show mercy and grace towards others. I mean, if these communities all over the world that are reading the book of Luke as, as part of their story have a mix of Jewish and Gentile people in it, then they can't take the opportunity to say, well, these bad things happen to you, and that's because God doesn't love you as much as he loves us, or God is judging you, whereas we've done it, right? They should be communities or people together where there is no judgment on each other. And they don't read judgment into the bad things that happen. That's really interesting. And so maybe that's why they kept these stories around, because it it not only challenged them, but if they bought into this message, it would actually kind of keep their communities together. And allow them to live and to thrive. It would teach them an important lesson about how to read and view the world and their neighbors around them. Um, I mean, and if you have in the midst of this apocalypse, you know, there's this baby religious movement that's actively persecuted on all sides by all kinds of people. You also have Jesus, you know, giving these parables about the seeds in the East. And if they, I would imagine that they'd kind of carry those stories close to heart and they would tell them to each other when things got tough because they're like, hey, it starts small. But good things that God is doing in the world, around us, in us, through us, cannot be stopped. I mean, even if Herod's would kill us, if the foxes come after us and try and stop us, that's not the end of the story. I mean, evil doesn't win. Like, that yeast is going to be mixed all the way through the flour until all of it is leavened. Just really interesting. And then... um. So I think that that's why I like this story. I want a couple more things. Um, it, it, these stories, again, hammer home the theme to that might be important to them of this idea of repentance, that on one side, they have this example of Jesus in these stories. Jesus never gives up on his enemies. Jesus never gives up on the Pharisees and the elites. Jesus never gives up on the lawyers and the teachers of the law. Jesus never gives up on poor people and rich people and anyone. And if they carry this example of Jesus close to heart, it would teach them and remind them that that they should also never give up on people. They should hold out to hope that people can change and that goodness can overcome evil in the world and that that can be good for them as they find evil within themselves and that that can be good for others and that they try and carry this message of hope to others. And so it would teach them to be kind of humble. Like Again, we have this example of how dangerous it is to be unrepentant you know, in the parable, like the gate might be closed at a certain point and you might think that you were good all the time, but it turned out that you were one of the evildoers. It's better to be one of the people on the ground. It's better to be humble. And so we, they need to make sure that part of the character of their religious group that's just growing out is that they make sure that they are constantly repentant. And that they maybe would kind of carry these stories and tell these stories to each other to remind themselves and say the message, hey, the second that we get the idea that we have it all right and everyone else has it all wrong, we are on the, on the path to calamity, to being shut out of the gates. And we are on a path when we think that we have it all right and that we're the only ones who have it, that we might end up committing the blasphemy against the Spirit and working against God and that is a dangerous place for us to be. It would constantly keep these people in this community humble and open and graceful and merciful. And along the way, if these stories are true, they would would believe that if they can follow that way, that that's actually how they're going to experience the favor of God and be gathered together under his wings and be one of his. And I think that that's also why they would carry these stories around. Because in these stories, as Jesus presents himself as the hen and not the eagle and not the fox, that these stories would remind them deep within their hearts that their faith is built around a God who is more like a hen than an eagle or a fox, a God who loves them and wants to gather in and protect them, even if that makes them vulnerable and God vulnerable, and that that character should be at the heart of their community and their faith. And somehow they found something really good within that that led them on to persevere and hang on through tough times. Really, really fascinating stories. Thank you guys for listening this week. It's been great. We'll be uh, up with the kitchen episode later this week, and then we'll be digging into Luke 14 next week. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review... Subscribe and share the podcast any way you can. Um, The more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. If you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, You can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and and keep things going on there. Uh, Just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lo at kevinlester.net, and that's lo-fi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi Kevin with no dash again. So at lo-fi kevin. Um that's kind of it. So thank you for coming and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.